Hi, everybody. I can't tell you how happy I am to be here. It's really a special to put this together. It takes a lot of unselfish, committed work to do this. It's a thankless kind of job, other than what your higher power will bestow on you. But um, it, it is sacrifice, and you did a hell of a job. And I appreciate it. Thank you. I like to say that my my drinking story is kind of similar to what happened to Christopher Columbus. He didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. When he got home, he didn't know where he had been. And he got a woman to pay for it. I had three out of four. All the women I've been with never paid for anything. And that's with good reason. First question most of the women I've been with asked me was, you're not a police officer, are you? First question I always asked them was, what do you mean you won't take a check? I am an alcoholic, sober and Alcoholics Anonymous today. I do not keep alcohol where I live. Sobriety 101, I have never kept alcohol where I live. I said that one night at a beginner's meeting in New York City. And there was a, there was a empty line. And at the end of the empty line, there was a woman. And she had a mink pulled over her shoulders. She had very expensive jewelry on. I found out later she was extremely wealthy. And it came her turn to, and she had this hairdo. That's what I remember, the hairdo. It looked like if a volcano, a hurricane, or somebody dropped a bomb on the place, everything would have got destroyed except for that hairdo. When it came her turn to share, she said, oh, I keep alcohol in all my homes. I'd never want my friends to think just because I don't drink, they can't. A couple of things. First of all, I'm not overly concerned about what anybody thinks about why I don't keep alcohol where I live. I don't have any aristocratic friends or any homes that they can come and visit me in. I do have many friends that are recovering heroin addicts. I don't know one of them that keeps a set of works in the freezer. <laughs> Just in case one of their old friends comes by. <laughs> one of the itty bitty miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous for me is at some point in time I realized it was okay to be me. I always said yes when I meant no. I said no when I meant yes because your opinion of me was a lot more important than my opinion of me. At some point in time, through the love of the people that was extended to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, I realized it was okay to be me. And I was sharing at a meeting one night on Cape Cod and as I was sharing, there was a guy at the back of the hall, and he was walking back and forth, and he was glaring at me. I may be a little self-centered, and sometimes I misinterpret things, but he was, he was glaring at me. He wasn't glaring over there or there. He was like glaring at me. And after the meeting, we were talking. We were getting ready to leave, and, and this guy says, uh, Hey, Jack. Come here. I walked over and he said, uh, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes, you may. And he said, uh, 
how long have you been sober? And I said, quite a while. And he said, you get double-digit sobriety? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, how come you never smile? I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, you got double-digit sobriety? He said, yeah. I said, how come you never mind your own business? There's only one time you will ever see me smile. There's only one time I smile. I smile when I feel like it. And if I don't feel like it, I don't smile. And I give other people the right to do likewise. You never know where somebody's coming from. You never know. I had all the symptoms of this sickness the first time I drank. I was 12 years old. It was a hot summer day. I was getting ready to go down the park and watch the big kids play in their championship baseball game. They were 15, 16, 17. I was 12. My mother called me up the stairs in the morning when I got up there. Three of the guys from the team were there. One kid's eye was completely shut. He had been stung by a bee in his eye the night before and he couldn't play and they needed me to play. I said, okay, I went down to the park. I was very overwhelmed by the size of the crowd, but I played. I played second base, I batted ninth. I got three CNI singles, I scored three runs. I handled all the chances at second base after the game. They took me down in the woods, the game that we won. They took me down to the woods where they were gonna have a drinking party. When I got down to the woods, the park instructor had been a monumental power of example the past three summers. He was perched on top of this large rock and he was slushy, lushy, slobbering, eyes floating around in his head, drunk. As far back as I can remember, I have always been petrified of drunken men and attractive women. <laughs> He gave me a six-pack of cold 16-ounce Budweiser, and there was something about it. My buddy Tommy and I, God be good to him, we walked up our little trail. We went off into this little section of the woods. There was a couple of rocks. We sat down. This kid from the team came over. He had a very attractive girlfriend. He said, Jack, say hi to Pam. I was very intimidated by her beauty. He said some nice things about me, about the game I had played. I felt very uncomfortable with compliments or anything nice. You know, if you don't have it in the inside, you don't have it. They went away, I was glad they went away. I cracked open a can of beer. The crack, the smell of the spray, there was something very powerful about this. I sensed there was a foreboding and it was powerful. I drank half of the beer, big burp, drank the other half, flipped it over my shoulder. My buddy Tommy was looking at me with eyes of hero worship, <laughs> saying to himself, where did you learn how to do that? This attention I like. I cracked open another can, I drank it right down, flipped it over my shoulder. So the kid from the team came walking over, he had a very attractive girlfriend, and he said, hey Jack, say hi to Sue. In the time it takes to drink two 16-ounce cans of Budweiser, I went from someone that did not want to be introduced to someone that just knew you wanted to be introduced to me. <laughs> I sat up like a game rooster and I started talking to 
talking to Sue, and she's talking to me. She wanted a cigarette. I gave her a cigarette. She wanted a beer. I gave her a beer. He seemed to sense that something was percolating between these two. He grabbed her by the arm. He said, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'll, I don't want to get out of here. I'll see you later. And I just knew that this seeming feeling of well-being that was coming over me, I just knew I could give this to anybody. Oh, it was a miracle what happened to me. My shoulders got light, my head got light. And I will tell you this, the more it does for you in the beginning, the more it will take in the end. The more it does for you in the beginning is not reflective of the power of alcohol, it's reflective of the sickness that lied within me. And that's all it was. Later that day on a bed, I drank a half a pint of Bacardi rum straight down. This feeling that I had of being invincible exacerbated and I was completely out of myself. I had my arms around these two guys from the park, the big guys, they used to beat us up every day. And I'm telling them things are going to be different from now on. <laughs> We're going to do this all the time. And I went into a blackout. When I come out of the blackout, two guys were holding me up by my arms, walking me around, and I was violently vomiting. I was throwing up so bad, I thought I was throwing up my organs. And I remember looking down at my private area, and I noticed that I was soaking wet. Obviously, somebody had spilt a beer on me. <laughs> What's so funny? You think I pissed myself? Somehow, I got home undetected. The next morning, I woke up from a sleepless sleep because all night long, I was bristling with excitement thinking about that day. And as I woke up, I reflected back on the day before. As far as I was concerned, that had been the greatest day of my life. I couldn't wait to go out and do it again. And this time I'd get it right and make a couple of changes. I will tell you this, blacking out is a very intense emotional experience. Pissing yourself is a very intense embarrassing experience. Throwing up is a very intense physical experience. If I had had those same experiences a day prior from a non-alcoholic beverage, I would have had my mother take me to a hospital. If I have those experiences from drinking this water, I'm going to go to a hospital, the emergency room, and I'll never drink this type of water again. I woke up the next day and I couldn't wait to go do that again. You have to be spiritually sick to identify with that. <laughs> I don't know how much fun I had when I drank. My definition of fun is completely different than what it was back then. Fun, my little sister, little, she's 40. She adopted this little guy from Russia two years ago. I took him to the airport when they left. I picked him up when they came back. We were friends at the airport. We became best buddies. We still are. He was two then, he's four now. A couple of months ago, I stopped by my sister's house, went in to see him. When I was leaving, he asked me for two, a couple of bucks to get a Slurpee. I always give him a couple of bucks. He likes Slurpees. But he asked me for $2. My sister got up and she said, Evan, I don't want you asking Uncle Jackie for money. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Time out. I'm his Uncle Jack. He's, we're best friends. We've been friends for a long time. He can ask me for anything he wants. So he doesn't ask his other aunts and uncles for anything. He just asks me. She says, well, all right. I said, never mind, all right. Tell him that. I said, tell him that. She said, okay, but just Uncle Jack. I said, Is that, are you okay, Evan? He said, okay. Next day, I went back over there when I was leaving. He said, Uncle Jack, can I get a couple of bucks for a Slurpee? I said, sure. I reached into my pocket. All I had was a $5 bill. 
I said, here, you can get a Slurpee today, you can get one tomorrow, and you have a dollar left over to get a surprise. How's that sound? He said, that's a great idea, Uncle Jack. Next day I was at my mother's house, they drove by. He demanded that they stop. <laughs> and I heard the car outside, I went outside and I saw my sister's car. I said, yeah. The door opened. I said, where's my nephew, Evan Nicholas Cooper? And he said, I'm right here, Uncle Jack. Come walking in. We, we talked for a little bit. I get ready to leave. And he said, Uncle Jack, can I get a couple bucks for a Slurpee? <laughs> I said, sure. And I just came from an ATM. I had a bunch of 20s. And I, and I, I said, Evan, I'll tell you what. I'll come by your house tomorrow and, and give you some money. How's that sound? And he said, he, his two little hands come up and grab me by the face, brought my head right up to his eyes. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Uncle Jack, that's not a good idea. <laughs> I said, you're right, Evan. You're right. You're absolutely right. You help Uncle Jack so much, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I gave him the money. I said, your mother will know what to do with all the money. His little chin was bristling with self-esteem like he had just solved a very major problem. He was walking around with a twinkle in his eye and a little kick in his step. That was fun. That's my definition of fun. That never happened to me when I drank. I don't know how much fun I had, but I was addicted to excitement. I was addicted to vice. I was addicted to anything that could get me out of myself. I drank early at a young age. I could walk into a bar room at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, and I would drink with the people, whoever was in there. At noontime, we'd, we'd bet on the football games. After we had the bets in, the games would kick off at 1. We'd sit down and have that supreme, majestic barroom feast. Peanuts, popcorn, potato chips, pizza, pig's feet. And if you were any type of an alcoholic, for dessert, you'd have a couple of pickled eggs. And if you had any class about you at all, when the bartender was getting the pig's foot and you had that prong in there, you'd select the one you want. No, 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 no. This one. This one? Yeah. No. The one with the long yellow cleft. <laughs> later on, after the games were over, my buddy would be there and I'd say, what do you think? You want to go out later on? Yeah, we'll have a few more and then we'll go home and get changed. All right. 9.30. I said, what do you think? You want to get changed? He said, I don't know. You think we need to get changed? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How do I look? You look all right. Just tuck your shirt in. <laughs> How do I look? Oh, you look all right, but pull your fly up. <laughs> About 10.30, we'd go out, usually to some bloodbath place. The places I went to, you didn't have to worry about getting thrown out of. You got thrown in, but you didn't get thrown out. It's one place we went to, they had this pool table, it was like this. They'd walk in, there were 200 people there. Six women and 194 vampires. Because of my fear of women, I would cop this attitude of indifference. And I'd maintain this attitude till about midnight. Then, due to the waning desperation of the approach of closing time, <laughs> coupled with alcohol releasing me from my inhibitions, and my inhibitions about to become my exhibitions, <laughs> from the still of the night would come the call of the wild. <laughs> and I'd go on the hunt. I got that 8,000 mile scare on my face. Some of the whiskey is spilt on my shirt. My flies down. Some of the pig's feet is hardened right here. This lady over here is getting very excited.
I'm, I'm your type of guy, huh, honey? And I don't care how drunk I was, blackout drunk, I would search the bar area scanning potentials for my prey. And if I saw a woman who looked like she was getting ready to pass out, or perhaps throw up, that was a signal for me to make my move. No matter where I went, I was always where I wasn't supposed to be with people that I wasn't supposed to be with. I remember when I was stationed in California, Camp Pendleton. This was in the early 70s. The first thing they do, they give you a one-day indoctrination. And this young Marine captain gets up there and he says, um, you know, welcome to Camp Pendleton. He said, everybody look at me. Everybody look at me. Tijuana is off limits. <laughs> Keep looking at me. Do not go to Tijuana. Does everybody understand? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If he'd ever known what happened to me when he said that, there was this little thing plant, a little, the seed was planted. All week long, I was asking people, um, how do you get to Tijuana? I'm just, what's it like? By Saturday, I had about three other heathen friends, and we were all going to Tijuana on Saturday. We made our way over to Tijuana. You got to cross customs, and, and I will tell you this, make no mistake about this. Tijuana in the early 70s made the combat zone in New York City look like a catechism class. <laughs> I saw a 10-year-old girl announce on the stage, my sister said to tell you that the show's been canceled, the donkey has a cold. And that's a no-shitter. That's where I met Ruth at. And you know the the beer was like like they almost like they made it in a bathtub. It was just whatever it was, but the tequila made up for it. This tequila made your blood boil. By noontime, I was smothered. I was trying to not black out. And all of a sudden, I heard all my friends start laughing. And I turned around, and I saw the biggest woman I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm talking seven foot tall. She had a head on her that looked like a racehorse. <laughs> All the women that work there, it's, every bar is a brothel, every woman that works there is the prostitute, that comes with the territory. And everybody's laughing, and she laughing, and I went into a blackout. Deja vu is when you've been there before. Vuja deja is when you haven't been there before. I came out of this blackout, and I really thought I had lost it. In front of me, I thought I was in the rack with Secretariat. <laughs> and Secretariat's talking to me, saying, I love you, Marine, I love you, Marine. And I'm saying, I love you too, Mumba Jumbo, I love you too. And I could hear all my friends peering through, the door was a, a white sheet. And I could hear my friends laughing, looking through the door. Now I'm starting to get excited. <laughs> Happens every time. Yeah. 
My story is a story of spiritual decay. Slow, steady spiritual decay, the type that porcelain gets affected by water. In the beginning, it looks like it's not going to do anything. Then it starts to discolor it. Then it starts to put a hole in it. Eventually, it goes through the metal. That's what happened to me. Alcohol put a hole in my soul. And at the end, I couldn't get excited. And there was nothing funny about anything. I couldn't laugh. I hadn't laughed for years. Towards the end of my drinking, I had stopped at this bar that I had been to before. The kid that worked there, I hadn't seen him for a long time. He owed me a favor. I told him I was hurting, I was broke. He said, you can have all the draft beer you want for nothing. I drank the beer. I passed out a couple of times. Towards the end of the night, I blacked out, passed out. They didn't know what to do with me, but one guy knew where my mother lived. They brought me down to my mother's house. They went around back. They opened the door. There was a rack there. They put me on the rack, and they left. Unbeknownst to them, there was a restraining order on me. You know, my mother, I'm one of ten children, nine and younger. My mother went to court with her house coat on with my little brother, who was two, and my little sister was three. My father had been gone a long time. People that love you go to court to protect themselves from you. And when I came out of the blackout, I couldn't believe where I was. I could tell by the chitter-chatter upstairs that they didn't know I was there. My brothers and sisters were getting ready to go to school. If they knew I was there, the conversation would have been much different. And I got up to walk out, and I was so sick. I just wanted to be dead. That's all I wanted, was to be dead. And I get up, and I was walking out, and there was a mirror. It had been my mirror when I lived there as a kid. In the right-hand corner of the mirror, there was a picture. And it was a picture of me and three of my brothers and sisters, and we had this little red wagon. I was about nine years old, and we were all smiling. It was the summertime. We all had our shirts off. And I stood there, and I looked at the picture, and I looked at the picture, and an egoless thought ran through my head. Whatever happened to that little guy that used to pull the little red wagon and stick up for his brothers and sisters? Whatever happened to that guy? And I remember I stood there and I wanted some answers. And I know from that day to the last day I drank, I drank with a broken heart. I drank with a broken spirit. I know I had a nervous breakdown. The nerves are overloaded and you break down. I was just a mass of fear. For the sake of brevity, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a kid in my 20s when I came here. I felt like I was in my 90s. I felt like I had lived three tough lives. I felt like there was no need to live another minute. This disease will take the brains right out of your head, the love from your heart, the spirit from your soul. It will prevent you from feeling any good feelings, replace it with feeling bad, then it will tell you to take your life. Because this disease knows no God. But as we come together like we are tonight, we have that benefit. AA quickly became the most important thing in my life. Because it has, I have stayed sober through my 20s, through my 30s, through my 40s. My sobriety has been continuous and uninterrupted. During that entire period of time, I have never woken up once and said to myself, gee, I wish I drank yesterday. And I've never had more gratitude than after a drunk dream. Because right about the time you realize it was only a dream, you feel a surge of gratitude because seconds before you really thought you lost the gift. There's three things you can do with this sickness sober. You can turn it inside and it will eat you up. You can turn it outside and look for trouble. Or you can change. And that's up to you. That's up to me. What you do around here, it's up to you. It's an inside job. Nobody gets inside you and makes your choices for you. It's up to you.
The only thing you get away with is the truth. The most powerful mind-altering drug is the truth. You can get away with lies and shameful conduct. Yes, you can. It's the getting away with it that eventually becomes the curse you can't live with. You can bury lies. Yes, you can. But they're buried alive. And they affect everything you do. The first truth I needed to learn about was the truth about alcohol. Alcohol never made me anything that I wasn't. I never became an Einstein, a pro football player, or a great soprano singer, whether I was drunk or sober. Alcohol never told me to do anything. It don't have a mouth. It can't talk. The character defects I displayed under the influence of alcohol came from me, not alcohol. Alcohol isn't cunning, baffling, and insidious. If alcohol was cunning, baffling, and insidious, everyone that drank it would become cunning, baffling, and insidious. Alcohol isn't cunning, baffling, and insidious. I am. What alcohol really does, it released me from my inhibitions. My inhibitions became my exhibitions. That works. It works for a while. Then it stops working. And like the big book says, we were at the jumping off point. You can't picture life with or without alcohol. My job today regarding alcohol is not to put a question mark where God has put a period. And I do that by surrendering to the fact that I need your help and somebody needs my help. Keep my spirit strong by being in the middle of sharing. Sometimes by giving, sometimes by taking, but always by sharing. The greatest transition in my life, by nothing, regarding alcohol, is at one point in my life I could not picture my life without alcohol. Tonight, I can't picture my life with alcohol. And that is strictly but for the grace of God, as that grace exists in this room tonight. When we leave here, this becomes an empty room. Come back here when there's nobody here. There's a force here tonight that's stronger than steel. It's so strong, it can keep us all sober today. There's a lot of pain and suffering in this room. There's a lot of people with life or death stories in this room. But we're sober here tonight. And if there's somebody new in this hall tonight or coming back, and you're wondering what the grace of God looks like, the grace of God is... 413 sober alcoholics in Newport, Rhode Island on a Friday night. Yeah. And if you're wondering what the grace of God doesn't look like, picture this place if we were all drinking. You see all the women running around here, very well attired, not a hair out of place in their head. They'd all be on the hunt. And it wouldn't be for Red October. Every guy under five foot eight that served in the United States Navy would be trying to beat me up. There's a whole row of very attractive women right there. They'd all be secretly and individually trying to think of ways to coerce me to get a hotel room with them tonight. <laughs> I wouldn't go. I've changed. I'm not like that anymore. I read a book once. Somebody gave me a book one time. The name of the book was, I'm okay, you're okay. I didn't like the book. I didn't read the book. If I was going to write a book, the name of the book would be, I'm not okay. And you're not okay. But that's okay.
I was sober over 15 years before I realized why I drank. I could tell you drunkologues galore. Insanity, pissing myself, blacking out, crimes galore. But I couldn't tell you why I drank. There was this little thing in the back of my head as to why. You know, why does somebody that has had these tragedies, humiliations that would cause somebody never to come out or see the light of day again, why does somebody that's had those experiences keep on putting back in their body the same thing that made them this way, the same thing that made them deathly sick, why are you putting the same thing back in your body that made you deathly sick in an effort to get well? And I was sober over 15 years before I found out why I drank. I drank to mood alter pain. Deep-rooted, chronic, ugly, frightened pain. For me, it went back to my childhood. An abused child. Treated a certain way on a daily basis that if I ever saw one of my brothers or sisters treat one of my nieces and nephews like that, there would be a confrontation. None of my business are not, I don't care. Christmas Day, I was four years old on a particular Christmas. I was passing a football that we got from Christmas, from Santa. My brother hit off his hands and broke a window. My father quickly got up and whipped me with a belt. He whipped me all day. He threatened me. You wait till tonight. He didn't feed me all day long, but he threatened me. You wait till you go to bed. You'll never do this again. For bedtime, he whipped me with the buckle. I still have a scar on my hip. I was four years old. I think I was eight or nine. I got my first special report in school. I was so petrified to bring it home. I had some, one of the kids in my class sign it. Naturally, I got caught. The next day, my father took me to school with a dress on. I could tell you stories all night long on a daily basis. But I'll tell you this story. When that stuff happens to you and you're a kid, it's pre-verbal. You're not set up to deal with that. It's not fair. And that God-awful fright, that frightening feeling of being frightened and petrified, that stays because it's got nowhere else to go. And what happens is you never feel like you belong. I had never felt like I belonged one day in my life. The only time I ever feel like I belong is when I say I never felt like I belonged. Understanding this, it didn't take away my pains, but it gave everything meaning. And I had new experiences to share with other people. And it also gave me permission to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean that it didn't happen. It mean, oh, it happened. Forgiveness means I'm not going to let my past become my future. I'm not going to drag this around with me. Therefore, you are forgiven. In the big book, there's a story about a guy named Jim. He was visited by the co-founders back when they were trying to hunt people down to carry the message to. Read it. Do your homework. More about alcoholism. He was visited by Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson told them their stories. He was elated by the stories. He felt better. He left the hospital. They told him, you need to hang around with us to enlarge your spiritual condition so you'll have a defense against these peculiar mental blank spots, the call of the wild. He thanked them for the information. A couple of weeks later, he was poured back into that hospital after a vicious bender. He begged the nurses to get these two guys. They came down to see him. They said, well, you were fine when you left here. Why don't you tell us what happened the day you drank? And he said he was, he was a car salesman. He worked at a place that he had formerly owned and lost through his drunkenness. He was now working for a guy that used to work for him. He had some words with this guy, but nothing serious. 
He went out in the country looking for applicants. He stopped at a tavern that he had been to many times before without any problem. He went in, he had a sandwich and a glass of milk. He ordered another sandwich and a glass of milk. Then it's italicized. It said, suddenly the thought came to me that if I poured a shot of whiskey into a glass of milk, I could drink it on a full stomach. Based on his history, there is no mystery to what happens to Jim when he takes one sip. But he told himself a lie, and then he drank. And as I stand here tonight, I have recovered from this hopeless condition of mind and body today. I do not tell myself lies and drink. I tell myself the truth, and I don't drink. The truth about Jack is I have a malady. I feel maladjusted and I create. The only forces that I know of that interrupt this sickness sober are God, the practice of spiritual principles, and being amongst the grace of God as it exists in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I can be a part of sharing. If I knew of other forces, I'd tell you. I don't. And it says in the book, you may find our example far-fetched. I thought it was far-fetched. I never poured a shot of whiskey into a glass of milk. I never drank with anybody that poured a shot of whiskey into a glass of milk. I never saw anybody pour a shot of whiskey into a glass of milk. The bar rooms that I drank in, the bloodbath bars, you could black out, shoot a weapon, a lot of things you could do. You never get thrown out. I guarantee you, if you poured a shot of whiskey into a glass of milk, you'd get thrown out. Get out of here. You're embarrassing us. I told myself other lies. That's what I identify with, like. Want to stop for a couple? What I should have said was, want to stop for 27 beers, 19 shots, we'll black out, piss ourselves, get arrested for driving under the influence, spend the weekend in jail, pay $2,000 for a lawyer, go to drunk school for six months and lose our license for a year? <laughs> and if I'd have said that to Jim way back when, he would have said, sure, I'll go with you. <laughs> Let me call Ruth and Brian, see if they want to come. The decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God is an important decision. If I do not make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, another decision is automatically made that I will trust and rely upon my foe, my enemy, the unaided will of Jack. Because I am the proud new owner of a threefold illness. I have a body that's addicted to alcohol. I have a mind left to its own devices as a magnet for... And I got an ego that always seems to tell me, you're wrong and I'm right. Trusting and relying upon myself, I will always live with regret, unable to express love or appreciate peace. So it's an important decision. All my life I tried to please you or control you. And it did not work, so I quit. When you realize how hard it can be to make a change in yourself, you begin to see the impossibility of changing anybody else. You can enjoy people or try to control them. You do one or the other, but not both. If I'm overreacting to somebody's behavior, I'm trying to control it. And I'll find no peace until I let go. It's not what you hang on to, it's what you let go of. When I first got sober, there was a, there's a hell of a lot more recovery through the steps these days than there was when I got sober. There was a lot of AA voodoo. <laughs> and you'd hear this commonly and frequently around meetings, old timers alike. Do you feel like drinking? Eat candy. You, you have a drunk dream? Eat ice cream. You got a resentment? 
Write it down on a piece of paper. Swallow it. If it don't pass today, it'll pass tomorrow. I have not learned how to handle a resentment. I've learned how to master a resentment. I can't handle a resentment. I can no more handle a resentment than I can handle alcohol. When I start, I don't stop. Allow other people to be spiritually sick. I can be spiritually sick. Let somebody else be spiritually sick. Avoid retaliation or argument. I can confront somebody. If it turns into a pissing contest, I thought we could talk maybe some other time. And ask God for kind and tolerant attitude and hang on because it takes time. I always shifted the responsibility for my behaviors onto everybody else. Judging the living shit out of people. People that I never even had a cup of coffee with. And I'd sit there and I'd cop this attitude. I had never even talked to this person. I was holding other people responsible for how I felt. I'd feel feelings and I'd create. And I'll tell you something, you can stay real sick around here for a long time. Take a look around sometimes, okay? And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I didn't come here tonight to shit you. Please do not shit me. How's that? The... God will not remove from me anything that I won't let go of. God will mend a broken spirit if we give him all the pieces. My soul does not get sick. It gets blocked. It gets blocked by hanging on to old attitudes and old ideas. Everything that I'm looking for in this program I have. This is a program of subtraction. Take away my difficulties. Remove from me these defects of character that stay in the way of my usefulness to you and others. What I'm looking for, I already have. The steps are a way of spiritual draino that unclog the pipes so the grace of God can come in and touch my heart and I can give this, I can reverberate this back out into the world. And remember, Oz never did give nothing to the tin man. <laughs> nothing he didn't already have. What I'm looking for, I already have it. And you can come to Alcoholics Anonymous and start getting things. You can get a job. You can get money. You can get a lot of money. You can get a car. You can get a new car. You can get a home. You can get Miss Wright or miss right now. <laughs> you can also pour maple syrup on horse shit, but that don't make it French toast. <laughs> the changes that take place in our fellowship are from the inside out, always. The only people you should ever get even with are the people that help you. I was sober over 10 years before I made an amend to my mother. This was the last two times I got arrested. The last time I got arrested was for five accounts of armed robbery. It wasn't as bad as it sounds, but it was bad. They set bail at $100,000 for each charge. $500,000, $50,000 cash or surety. And at that particular time, I just didn't happen to have it. <laughs> my mother came down, and I hadn't talked to my mother for several months. She came down and put up the house again. I was sober over 10 years before I really saw that I owed her an amend, you know? A great capacity to rationalize. Yeah, all this stuff happened, you were there. One day, I was meditating. And every time I closed my eyes, it was like I was on a bad LSD trip. The floor was like this. I got wicked dizzy. I had to open my eyes. I'd close them. Finally, I just sat in the chair and this thought came to me. Today is the day you make amends to your mother. 
There will be no further spiritual progress until this is done. I got up, I got in my car, I drove to my mother's house. I walked in, my mother was sitting at the head of the table, the house was all squared away. I have never seen my mother's house like that before or after. I sat down, I said, how you doing, Ma? She said, good. And I said, you know, I've been sober for a while now. She goes, yeah, you're doing good. I said, the program that I'm involved in is a lot more than just not drinking. She said, okay. And I began to cry. And my tears escalated into sobs. I just said, wait a second. I went in the bathroom. I got my composure. I sat back down again. And I said, you know, I, I, I've got to do something here today. And it's very hard. And she said, wait a minute. You don't have to put yourself through this. And I just put my hand up. And she said, oh, you got to do this for yourself? And I said, yeah. And I said, all the humiliations, all the embarrassments, all the stuff in the newspaper, on the radio, all the embarrassments in front of your friends and everything. Well, I came here today to tell you that I'm sorry. She got up and she walked over to me. And she put her hand on the back of my head and she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. I don't ever remember my mother telling me that. I don't ever remember me telling my mother that. My mother is a great warrior. Her love was always in her actions. Nobody never told her that either. No days off for my mother. My father left a long time ago. No days off for my mother. Her love was in her actions. Right after this happened, my little brother came walking in. One of the neighbors came walking in. People started to come walking in. I quietly made my way out. I said, I'll see you later. I walked outside, and you know, there's been times in my sobriety when I felt so self-centered. If you looked at me, you could see it. And I was so contorted and wrapped up in stuff, I just wished there was something I could drink or do that would bring about this metamorphosis of... <laughs> and it happened on that day. It happened to a degree on that day. I've always had a very rough relationship with my mother. We're very much alike. When I went there and took responsibility for my behavior, every feeling that was ever suppressed through responsibility was expressed. And the tears, the sobbing, that was part of the healing feeling. If somebody dies and you feel sad, it's the feelings of sadness that you want to feel. That's what gets you over the hump. And as a result, and I'm one of these guys, I always thought if you did stuff like that, you'd feel less about yourself as a man. I don't feel less about myself. I just think about myself less. And I felt so moved when I walked outside I wanted to walk up to a complete stranger and say, hey, you, you made amends to your mother yet? Where do you live? California? Let's go. Somebody had asked me what I wanted from Alcoholics Anonymous when I came here. I would have said, pretty girlfriend, new car, money. Boy, would I have sold myself shot. Those things don't get you sober. They don't keep you sober. If you place them before your sobriety, they may well get you drunk. I have desires for all those things. Of course I do. But what I really needed was a relationship with a higher power and the ability to start telling the truth, making sure that what came out of my mouth was true and that my behavior was true. You know, the prayer and meditation will never leave you the same way it found you. Prayer does change things. Prayer does bring about changes that would not have occurred had the prayers not been said. Meditation is the highest form of human activity. It leads us to our greatest faculty, intuition. Intuition bypasses the thought process. I've been given intuition through prayer and meditation about subject matter, keen intuition, that I have no human experience to warrant having that information. And it was always to be used for somebody. Somebody that was confused. When you hear the truth, it'll straighten out that confusion. 
and your heart and your head will become true. I came out of a Kriya Yoga meditation one night. It was about a two-hour meditation. And it was disclosed to me what really happened in the Garden of Eden. I'll share this with you. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and God come walking in, and Adam said, Hey, Lordy, can I ask you a couple of questions? God said, Sure. He said, uh, How come you made Eve so beautiful? And God said, Because I wanted you to like her. I said, Oh. Um, how come you made it so soft and shapely? And God said, Because I wanted you to like her. Oh. How come you made it so stupid? God said, because I wanted her like you. <laughs> yeah, you smile and clap now. A couple minutes ago, a few of these women were going to assassinate me. <laughs> I left the detox commitment one night, and a wise old gentleman told me, if I was faithful to the prescription of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would never appear anywhere as a patient for having this disease, and days would come when I'd be privileged to be a guest because I'm treating it. Tonight, on behalf of the Rhode Island State Convention, I have been honored to be your guest at this meeting. It has been a great privilege, it has been a great honor for me to be your guest. And as your guest, I want to say to that one, someone, somebody that's new in this hall tonight or coming back, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like for you to know that if you try to live an honorable life with your sobriety, being responsible to your involvements, faithful to your friends, and kind to the weak and strong and rich and poor alike, it does not matter what you believe or disbelieve, for God is present in the virtues of faith, responsibility, and kindness. And in general, everything will be okay. You can never tell when misfortune may not after all turn out to be fortune. If I had been a social drinker, I never would have felt the god-awful aches of alcoholism that have led me to know in sobriety the true meaning of life, the premium importance of God, and the value of character to the human spirit. One must never forget when misfortune comes, it is quite possibly saving us from something much worse. But when we make a mistake, it may very well serve us better than our best advised decisions. For life is a whole, and fortune and misfortune are parts of the whole, and no part can be separated from the rest. Here tonight, we witness the miracle of divine interruption. Untreated alcoholism is a terminal disease that kills most alcoholics. They say one of 37 recovers. Most alcoholics will die shortly after their last drink, or medically from a drink, or from a drinking episode. This is the case unless the sickness is interrupted. Our sickness has been interrupted here tonight. And were any of us, of and by ourselves, capable of interrupting it? May we never minimize, underestimate, or take for granted this gift of sobriety that is ours. You people have been very, 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 very kind to me here tonight. You have given me your patience, your tolerance, and your understanding. You have shed on me here tonight more human warmth than I felt as a kid during my entire childhood. And to you people, I remain very grateful. Thank you.
hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon Talk, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com.